Today's reading is from Romans 4, starting in verse 17. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. It is an interesting thing about our culture. We, we love the myth of the underdog. I have three daughters, and I'm not afraid to admit that I love the Cinderella story. Um, my favorite is the Drew Barrymore ever after Cinderella story. And I'm not afraid to admit that I cry every time the old man who returns from jail embraces his old wife in the field. Do you remember that scene? Yes? You all cry too. Um, we love the come from behind story. We love the down on their luck, um, come out of the ashes, the woman gets the man kind of story. A couple summers ago, I read Laura Hildebrand's book, Unbroken. And I spent um, probably about three hours reading that book because I could not put it down. Um, Who's read Unbroken? If you haven't, you should read it. This book spent four years on the New York Times bestseller list, and that was for a good reason. Um, it's about this man, Louis Zamperini. And uh, this man lived a larger-than-life kind of life. He was a delinquent growing up. He was a brawler. Uh, then he was an Olympic runner in the Berlin Games. Then he fought in World War II as an airman. He was shot down over uh, the Japanese sea. He spent 47 days on a tiny raft with very little food and very little water. There's one scene in the book where he grabs a bird and eats the bird because he hasn't eaten for days, bugs go into his beard, and to clean off his beard, he puts his beard in the water, and sharks attack his face, and he beats off the sharks to try to get the bugs out of his beard. And it's page after page as if, can this get any worse? Can anybody relate to the feeling of, can it get any worse, as you're reading this book? and then it gets worse. He gets captured and gets thrown into a camp where he is tortured day after day after day after day 
until he's released in 1945. It's one of those against all hope type of stories. Uh, it's one of those stories where it's how is this possible day in and day out and day in and day out. It's one of those against all hope stories. Paul, the Apostle Paul, puts a first century against all hope story in front of us that any Jewish reader would have immediately connected with. It's an against all, story, against all hope story that any first century Jewish reader would have immediately connected with. Abraham and Sarah. This, according to verse 18, is an against all hope story. They were the parents of many ethnos, many nations, and Abraham receives this glorious promise from God that he would be a blessing to many nations. Now, if you're not familiar with the New Testament, in another letter that Paul writes in Galatians, Paul says that this blessing to the many nations is called the good news, the gospel. It's the gospel. This was an announcement of very, very good news through Abraham. Now, there's a significant difference between the, 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 the against all hope story of Abraham and Louis Zamperini, and that is death. See, death is a big problem. If Louis died in a Japanese camp, the story would be over, right? There wouldn't be any book. Death has a rude way of ending everyone's story. Abraham seems to have a very, very big problem in his against all hope story, and that is very clear in this text that Paul writes to us. His body was as good as dead. His body was as good as dead. Have you ever been in one of those circumstances or contexts in your life where you feel hopeless? like an against all hope situation in your life, like someone like Paul says over your life, your body is as good as dead, your circumstance is as good as dead, don't even try to live any longer. I mean, can you feel the tension in this text that Abraham, the brutal reality in your life is that your body is as good as dead. You cannot have children physically, and yet God has promised that through you a nation is going to be born? How is that possible? You understand that Abraham's a human being, right? I'm 100 years old, and through me, through me physically, a nation is going to be born. And yet, I'm 100 years old. This is what I love about this text of scripture. Paul takes this massive theological concept that for those of you that have been around church probably longer than God, he takes this resurrection concept and makes it very, very practical in the life of a believer. See, my concern is that we really only think about resurrection only on Easter. And the reality is that resurrection 
is something to live in minute by minute and second by second of your life. It is the Christ life. We walk with a resurrected king. Resurrection is the greatest, most joyful reality we have. It's that Jesus is alive. There are two things that I think that, that, that we see in this text that emerge about resurrection. And here's the big idea I see in this text. The resurrection empowers us to be brutally real and to be fully persuaded. The resurrection empowers us to be brutally real and fully persuaded. Brutally real and fully persuaded. God gives us right now, through the resurrection, the power, the power, the ability. What I mean by power is if there was a 500 pound weight in front of you, power means ability the ability to lift that 500 pound weight. Do you, do you understand what I mean by power? The resurrection gives you power to be real with yourselves about what is true. That's power, right? It gives you the power to be brutally real and honest with yourselves and also to be fully persuaded that God has power to do what he promises. So imagine there are two 500 pound weights right here, the power for you to lift one weight that you can be brutally real with who you really are, who you really are, and to lift the weight to be truly and fully persuaded that God can actually do what he promises to do, the resurrection can do that in your life. Let me put it in the negative. Let me put it in the negative. God gives you right now the power to stop avoidance, to stop being a fake, to stop denying reality. That's power. That's a lot of power. And to stop running to unbelief and believing lies about God and who he is and what he has promised right now. That's what the resurrection does. And that's power. You see, Abraham and Sarah, if you don't know about Abe and Sarah, Genesis chapter 12 through 22 tells the story of Abe and Sarah. Do you mind if I tell you a little story about Abe and Sarah? What are you going to do? Say no? <laughs> Abe uh, didn't know God, the covenant God. He lived in a place called Ur in Samaria. God calls him because he wanted to not because of anything that Abraham had to offer God. And he said to Abraham, I'm gonna make a covenant with you, which if you've been around for a while, you know how I've defined covenant. Covenant is a promise that God makes with humanity. That is this, I am covenanting with you. I promise to bless you forever, ever, ever, 
ever, ever, ever, ever, ever, ever, ever, ever, ever, ever, ever, ever, ever, ever, ever, ever, ever, ever, ever, ever. I will never, ever, 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 ever. And the church said, no, ever. Ever, 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 ever go back on it. I will never go back on my promise to bless you ever, 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 ever. When God makes a promise with Abraham to bless him and make him a nation, he says to him, I will never, ever, ever, ever go back on that. Ever. And then he says, I want you to leave your people. I want you to leave your father. I want you to leave your land. I want you to leave everything. And I want you to go to a place. What's that place? Come on, church. What's that place? Where does he tell him to go? Where? Canaan. Canaan, right? Y'all remember what Canaan was? How many sons did Noah have? Three, right? Who was the cursed son of Noah? And where did the cursed son of Noah get cursed to? Canaan. Canaan. What does God call Abraham to go to? Canaan. Hey. Abraham, you go to the cursed place because that's where I'm going to bless my people and be a blessing to the nations. What a God. Yeah? Because our God's a God of resurrection. He's a God who takes cursed people and blesses them. Even in Genesis chapter 12, he's preaching the gospel, right? Because this is what Paul picks up on in Galatians chapter 3 in the cursed place of Canaan. I'm gonna bless my people. I'm gonna resurrect the people because that's what our God does. That's what our God does. He says, I'm gonna give you a son. I'm gonna give you a child. And so from chapter 12 through 22, it's just this crazy story, up and down and up and down where Abraham is afraid of Pharaoh, he's afraid of another king. I guess Sarah was a pretty hot lady for 75 years old and he's like, hey, you be my sister because I don't want the king to kill me for you. And you see Abraham kind of being a dork a little bit. And, um, but God keeps telling Abraham, chapter 18, the Lord comes and says, you're going to have a child. And Sarah laughs. I ain't going to have a child. You're crazy. Chapter 21, she has a child. What does she do? What does Sarah do? She laughs. Names him Isaac, which means laughter. God fulfills his promise. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you with a son. And I'm going to bless your people with a land. 
the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Verse 18, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham was brutally real. He was brutally real. Here's the thing, we don't pay doctors to tell us half-truths, do we? We don't pay doctors to lie to us about our health, do we? We don't pay dentists to tell us that we actually don't have cavities and don't need root canals, do we? Yet, we want our parents, and as parents, we want them to tell us that we are the greatest things ever. And we want our friends to tell us half-truths about who we really are. One of my favorite songs of all time is Helplessness Blues. I was raised up believing I was somehow unique, like a snowflake distinct among snowflakes, unique in each way you can see. And now, after some thinking, I'd say I'd rather be a functioning cog in some great machinery serving something beyond me. You heard that song? Could it be that David McCullough's graduation speech, you are not that special? Have you seen that? The high school speech? There's like 50 million views on YouTube. Perhaps the speech, you're not special, struck a chord because even though we don't like that reality, sometimes it's quite refreshing. Of course, for others, right? See, in verse 19, it says, without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead and Sarah's womb was as good as dead. I'm as good as dead and my mama's as good as dead. In the Greek, it's a play on words. It's, it's weakening literally. It, it means debilitating illness. His as his body is slowly dying, his faith is slowly growing. Isn't that beautiful? As, as he is slowly weakening, his faith is slowly growing. You know, the Genesis narrative does not tell us how long it took to conceive Isaac. But Sarah, and Abraham faced facts. And brothers and sisters, faith does not avoid the facts. Faith enables us to face facts. Christ followers are realists, brutal realists. I mean, can you honestly imagine the conversation that Abraham had with Sarah? Sarah, the Lord told me we're going to have a child. Can you imagine Sarah's response? Uh, honey, that ain't gonna happen. Uh, well, honey, the Lord told me. Uh, fam, have you looked in the mirror? You're 75 years old, bro. I mean, I know sometimes we kind of sterilize the scriptures and we don't think that these are human beings 
but they are human beings, right? They're like you and me, okay? They're real people. Can you imagine your husband, 75, and comes home to you and you're 75 and says, the Lord told me that we're having a baby? Ladies, what do you think you would say to your husband? <laughs> I know what some of you would say. <laughs> right? I mean, honestly, I can relate to Abraham. Man, I got a call, honey. He told me. He's going to make me the father of many nations. Let's go. Right? I mean, I can imagine the theme song playing in the background. His palms are sweaty. He's nervous. But on the surface, he looks calm and ready to drop bombs. But he keeps on forgetting what he wrote down. You know? You better lose yourself in the music, you know. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about, but that's my theme, that's my theme song. <laughs> Wife says, your body is as good as dead, honey. Not really, man. It's a bit old around the edges. It's not that dead yet. Why is reality so rude? Why is it so rude? I ain't that old. Just a little bit. You know, the question is we have to face right now is what reality do you avoid right now? You know it. You're uncomfortable right now when I'm just even mentioning it. See, the beautiful thing, the beautiful freeing truth in this text is if, if you really believe in resurrection, you're willing to admit something's dead or it's about to die because you have another hope. You have another hope. And you have hope in a God who can resurrect things and bring things back to life. And it actually enables you to have Hope that something may, even though it's dying, God may actually bring it back. It might be a dream. It might be a relationship. It might be a career. It might be a narrative, a story of what a church should have been like or what it should be like. It might be a child of what a child should have been or should be might be a marriage and what that marriage should have been like or should be. Could be your health, your body. Could be your pride. Could be that pride should have died a long time ago and you keep putting it on life support. Could be a quarter life crisis, could be a midlife crisis. It's an interesting thing, Jules Schroeder talks about quarter-life crisis, and I think it's a real thing. I think midlife crisis is too. Jules Schroeder in Forbes magazine writes about quarter-life crisis. She says, I started asking myself, do I really have the success that I thought I would have? She's about 25. 
Am I actually creating an impact on the world? Am I happy? What's the point of all this anyway? It's a period of intense soul searching and stress occurring in your mid-20s and 30s, typically because you feel you're not achieving your full potential or falling behind. There is a point in your life where you realize, is this all there is? And you start looking tombs of dreams. And you start calling them forth to come alive again. And in that moment, everybody believes in resurrection. Because those hopes and dreams are either dying or dead, and you want them to come back and they don't. And it's at that point, we all wrestle with what do we really believe in? Abraham and Sarah face the fact that their body was as good as dead. They, they saw that tomb. And they saw the only hope they have. The only hope they have is someone else. These, these bodies ain't gonna do anything. Resurrection enables and empowers brutal realism and also full, full persuasion being fully persuaded, being fully persuaded. You ever watch a kid get caught doing something? I remember the first time I got caught stealing something at 7-Eleven. I know y'all never stole anything at 7-Eleven. You probably didn't because you're overachievers and I wasn't. First time I got caught stealing something at 7-Eleven, I was six years old. I was stealing Rolos and Sweet Tarts, a lot of them. I wasn't good at being a thief yet, all right? And I was stuffing Rolos and Sweet Tarts in my socks. And let's just say you can't stuff a lot of Rolos and Sweet Tarts in your socks when you're six years old, all right? They tend to puff out your pants. And um, so I was bent over, sticking them in my socks, and I got greedy. Okay, because I didn't get caught the first time. So I stuffed them in my socks, I walked out, I threw them under a bush. And I thought, well, that worked once, and I've got about nine pieces of candy. So nine times two is, I don't know. So I'm gonna count <laughs> one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, plus one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine is more than one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. So that's a lot. So I'm gonna go in and I'm gonna get a second round of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. So I went in again and I stuffed my socks and I felt this big hand on my shoulder. And he said, son, what are you doing? 
And like any good six-year-old kid, what do you think my answer was? Nothing. And uh, he said, look at my eye. And so like a good six-year-old, what did I do? You know, I'm not looking at his eye. What are you doing? I'm not doing nothing. What's in your socks? Nothing. There's Rolos in your socks. No, there's not. There's sweet tarts in your other socks. No, there's not. Wouldn't, wouldn't admit it. He's taken the Rolos out of my socks, <laughs> shown them in my face. What is this? Nothing. I'm going to call your mama. Rolos. Those are Rolos, right? Those are, those are Rolos and sweet tarts. That's what those are, right? So funny. We were praying down here, praying for people. Sweet little boy, banging on the drums in the back. Like, so it was getting to the point where it was too loud. Go up, sweet kid. Hey, quit, quit playing the drums. Come back here, pow, 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 playing the drums again. Sweet kid, love the kid. Go up there, I said, stop playing the drums. Okay. Go back there, pow, pow, pow. Sweet kid, love the kid. Keep playing. <laughs> Praying again. Pow, pow, pow. I said, quit playing the drums. Okay. Bab, 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 playing the drum. Like five seconds later, fourth time, stop playing the drum. Bab, bab, bab. All right, bro, I said, stop playing the drum. This is what he said. He pointed to his brother. Literally, he, he took the, the drumstick, pointed to his brother like it was his brother banging the drum. I said, you got the stick. He went, pointed to his brother. I was like, it's in us all, right? It's in us all. When we get caught... All we want to do is avoid. We lie. We all lie. The resurrection demands that we cannot avoid the fact that we have all been caught. We've all been caught. Do you understand that, church? The resurrection demands of all of us that we have all been caught. We've all been arrested. We've all been caught. We've all been arrested, but also fully persuaded that we've been set free. We have all been caught. We have all been arrested, but we have also been fully set free. You see, Rachel has already alluded to this, and Paul has alluded to this. If resurrection doesn't exist, then I think we are putting makeup on a pig, and we are a very pitiful bunch. If it doesn't exist, if the resurrection doesn't exist, then we need to avoid who we really are. If the resurrection does not exist, then we need to avoid who we really are then we need to put spin on things. Then I need to avoid who I truly am, and I need to hide. Because frankly, if the resurrection does not exist, and all I have is now, I have little hope, little certainty, and the only future I have is what I can create with my own hands, and with my own mind, and with my own will, and with my own strength, and all I have is me, and you know what? All I have is you. And all I have is what you think of me. 
and what you can do for me and what you can give me or what you can take from me or what you can do to me. Does that make sense? Let me repeat that. If the resurrection does not exist, then all I have is what I can do for myself with my hands and my brain and my mind, and all I have is you. And that's a very scary proposition because now I have to trust you. What you can do for me or what you can do to me. No wonder I avoid you and don't trust you, especially if you hurt me. You hurt me once, I might forgive you. You hurt me twice, eh? You hurt me three times, I'm gone. Does that make sense? Is there any wonder there's so little forgiveness in our world? I have little hope, but what if there's a God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not, then that's a game changer, right? Right? But what if there is a God who spoke to Abraham a long time ago, who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Abraham and Sarah not only stared at the fact that their body was as good as dead, but in verse 21, they were fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. Paul says three things about Abraham and Sarah and their faith. Their faith did not get a debilitating weakness Verse 20, it didn't waver or hesitate, and it was strengthened. It was strengthened. They gave glory to God. They depended on God. They had faith in God. They had faith in resurrection. They lived a life of faith. They lived a life of dependence. Now, I want to I wanna give you a term. It's an oxymoron. And, I'm an oxymoron, so that should make sense to you that I'm going to give you an oxymoron. The life of faith and dependence is a life of active passivity. Francis Schaeffer called the life of faith a life of active passivity, and I know that's an oxymoron. It's a life of active passivity. Abraham and Sarah lived a life of dependence and faith. They believed that God could do what he said he would do. It's a life of active passivity. See, Abraham and Sarah believed, right? They, they, they received the promise. They received it. God called out Abraham and gave him a promise. That's passive. There's an aspect of your faith that's very passive. I receive from you with open hands but they also actively did something with their faith, right? There's two things. There's two things that Abraham and Sarah did with their faith. Think about the promise. I will make you a great nation. 
I will make you a great nation. That's the promise, right? Remember the Abraham and Sarah story? I will make you a great nation. There are two things that Abraham and Sarah had to do. One, it's pretty clear. They had to leave their country and kindred and house and go to Canaan, right? Can we all agree that's what they had to do? Is that active or passive? What if they didn't go? Nope. Not obedience, right? Second thing, and I want to keep this PG. What else did Abraham and Sarah have to do in order to fulfill the promise? They had to turn on some Marvin Gaye and light a candle, right? Right? I mean, I, I know this is church, but you get what I mean, church, right? They had to have a baby, okay? Is it any wonder that Sarah laughed? Is it? I mean, I know sometimes Sarah gets a bad rap in this whole thing. I think Sarah had more faith than Abraham, honestly. I think Sarah's an amazing woman of faith. Is it any wonder that Sarah at some point was like, take Hagar, man. Like, this is getting ridiculous. I know you're looking at me like, well, that's speculative. It is, but how many years did they wait until they had a child? Seriously. I mean, I speculate it's a long time. I get impatient with a microwave, right? You wanna wait a decade and you're in your 70s and your husband's saying, well, the Lord said, well, the Lord said, hey, bro, your body's as good as dead. You know, it's, an, it's interesting. One point Abraham says, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one will inherit my estate as Eleazar of Damascus? And Abraham said, you have given me no children. How about Eleazar, man? Sarah's like, how about Hagar, man? Like, this is getting, this is getting silly. Friends, how many times when things get tough, do we fulfill God's promises or try to in our own ways? Because it is just too much. We start pulling out Eleazar's and Hagar's. I got it, Lord. How about we do your will in my way? Being fully persuaded I can work for you instead of trust you will work. You see, what Paul is saying is that Abraham and Sarah persisted over time in faith that God had power to do what he had promised. Didn't mean that they didn't stumble. Church, you're gonna stumble in these things. But what he's saying is that over the arc of time, they persisted 
and that they were fully persuaded that God could do what he said he's going to do. And this, according to Paul, this trust to give life to the dead and call things into being that were not, glory to God, was credited to him as righteousness. What the heck does that mean? This is really important. That trust, that full assurance, was credited to him as righteousness. You ever have a credit card or a debit card declined? You ever been at a restaurant or somewhere? Like, hey, I'll pay the bill. Comes back, and they're like, excuse me, sir or ma'am, there are insufficient funds on this credit card. You ever had that? It's church. You never had that, seriously. I've had that happen so many times. It's really embarrassing. You ever bounced a tithe check? I have. It's really embarrassing. As a pastor, bounced a tithe check. That was awesome. Three people will come back next week. That'll be great. Um, that's right. We won't have church next week. So, um. Transaction declined. You feel like a loser, right? Insufficient funds. It means there's not enough in the bank to pay the bill. Insufficient funds. You can't pay the debt. That, that's Paul's logic related to credit. Credit. You see, according to Paul, the wages of sin is death. Death doesn't just mean physical. Death means physical, spiritual, psychological, relational, creational, structural, everything that is not right in the world. Everything that we cry foul is death. Everything that our sin broke that we look at as injustice and broken and wrong, and that the Bible says is wrong, is death. The, the currency, the, 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 the payment for our human propensity to screw God's people and God's way is death. And, and we try to pay that debt. And the card comes back, insufficient funds, transaction declined. Insufficient funds, transaction declined. You can't pay this debt every time you try to pay it. Transaction declined. Insufficient funds. But then there is great news. Verse 24. For those who believe in him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, transaction approved. Sufficient funds. It's credited to you as righteous. Christ paid the debt for you. And what is the proof that there are sufficient funds and that Christ Jesus paid your debt? He was delivered over to death because of our sins and was raised to life because of our justification. 
God handed his beautiful son over to death to pay for death. He paid your debt. How do we know that debt was paid in full and there were sufficient funds to pay that debt? Resurrection. He was raised to life. And you are now sons and daughters, justified, sons and daughters of the living God. Why? Because the tomb is empty. And now life, new life, hope is offered to you in Jesus Christ. What is that hope? That hope is now you walk in relationship with him. You don't have to fake. You don't have to lie. You don't have to avoid. The tomb is empty. You're walking with the king. Every sin nailed to the cross. Everything that you want to avoid, everything that you don't want to admit, he already knows. <laughs> he already knows. He nailed it to the cross. He loves you. He's decided to. He rose from the grave. He's not ashamed of you. He calls you brother. He brings you into his family room. He takes you out of the courtroom. He sits you down and he says, I want to introduce you to my father. He's God. And he loves you. He offers you life. And that life's not just eternal. It's now. Be fully persuaded. That he can do everything that he promises that he can do. Everything. Father, I pray that you would give great faith to these precious people, that you can do everything that you have said you can do. In Jesus' name, amen.